Would you just join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Jesus, we do come to you this morning. We're grateful that we can come out of all that's in our life, all of the the difficult things, the hard things, the the things that make us frustrated or confused, and, and we can come to you. And so we do this this morning, and I pray that as we come before Christ, as we come before you this morning, that our souls would be lifted and our hearts would be stirred and we would get a vision of something bigger than our lives, bigger than this moment, that we would see Jesus in His glory. Thank you that we get to sing these songs together and to be lifted to these noble thoughts. And I just pray now that our hearts and our focus would be ready now to receive your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would invite you to return to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. This is your first Sunday here. We're studying the book of Acts, making our way thought by thought through it. We have left off at Acts chapter 3. And uh, as you're turning there, um, just share with you an interesting thing. I received an email a few weeks ago from an online publisher who had asked me if I would write a blog for their online thing. And, uh, and, and the requirements for this blog is that they wanted some kind of provocative title. Write, write whatever you want, but just make sure that the title has some provocative element to it that would get people's attention. Make them want to read it. And so I, didn't, I haven't written the thing, but, but I, I did think about something in light of uh, the book of Acts. I thought about a title like this, right? Now, this is intended to be provocative and intended to make it look like it's heresy, right? So it's like the intention is to get your attention to say, is this right? And I was thinking a title, something along the lines of how I came to reject community in the local church. That would be an interesting title, right? How community is unbiblical, some title like that. And I thought there would be something that would get somebody's attention, a pastor writing saying, I think community is unbiblical. And I thought about that for this reason. Um, first of all, I think community is a great thing, okay? <laughs> but, uh, but, but there's an interesting thing. The, the, the idea of community in its like purest definition, okay, the purest definition of community is just a group of people, any size, that share some common value or some common belief or some common enjoyment. That's community. So community is this. Basically, you could get a whole bunch of people, like today, right? Tonight is Bears-Packers game, right? Big big game, right? For Especially for Bears fans, you know, hoping some miracle will happen and there'll be a victory, right? And so, so there's this moment that what's going to happen today is there's going to be a whole bunch of people in Bears jerseys all gathering around TV. And there's a bunch of people in Packers jersey all gathering around. And they're, they're going to get their food out and they're going to watch the game. That's community. In the purest sense, that's community. Community is basically saying a bunch of people with these shared set of values, they're all gathering together, they're enjoying this thing. And and you stop and say, okay, if that's all it takes to get community, then in one sense, sometimes that is all that we try to strive for in the church. Well, let's just go to a church that shares the doctrine we have, and then we could all gather in a room and go, hey, we agree with you, pastor. Good doctrine. At the end of the game, they're high-fiving me. Good sermon. Right? <laughs> Way to go. 
hoping for another victory next week, right? It's just kind of, it's just community, right? We, we found a bunch of people we agree with, and then we all gather together to share in that agreement. And I was thinking, you know, that's probably not enough. I'm not certain that that would carry you through to persecution. Because here in the book of Acts, uh, Peter's going to stand up and preach a pretty bold sermon that's going to get him thrown in jail. Now, 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 what does it take for the church to, to know that when they proclaim Jesus, they're going to get thrown in jail, to not run from that commitment? Right? To know that, that you are going to, when you proclaim Jesus, that it could cost you everything. I think there's something deeper than just community that's holding people together. Well, there is this other word. It's, there's a derivative of the word community. And that derivative is this. It's the word communitas. So instead of I-T-Y, you have I-T-A-S, communitas. Communitas is a little bit different. It's a different type of community. Communitas are a group of people who have been set apart to accomplish something, to face something together. It's a commitment to a certain goal or mission. Best way to explain the difference between community and communitas is that, is that today there's going to be a bunch of people wearing Bears jerseys, sitting in their homes, eating Doritos, drinking Mountain Dew, watching a game. They'll have community. There will also be 22 guys in Bears Packer uniforms playing the game. They have communitas. The guys on the field have a different form of community because they're actually playing the game. They're actually out on the field saying, I'm trying to beat you in this game today. And I'm going to do all the exercise and do all the game planning and, and we are binding together as a unit to try to win. That's communitas. Okay, what does all this have to do with Acts chapter 3? The early church understood one thing, that Jesus was Lord. But the fact that Jesus was Lord was something more than a doctrinal creed that they just affirmed. Community, right? Just, we agree Jesus is Lord. Let's all gather with a bunch of people who agree Jesus is Lord. Let's agree. They understood that Jesus was, is Lord meant that they are to go everywhere and tell everybody that Jesus is Lord. And if you don't believe in that, there's eternal consequences. That Jesus is Lord to such a degree that there is no other way to heaven, there's no other way to God, there's no other way to anything else other than Jesus. Now, so you're going to go to the world, you're going to tell the world this, which means that you're going to have to bind together with people who will pray with you and for you, because now the mission is deeper than just getting a bunch of people who say, I agree Jesus is Lord. What about linking arms with a bunch of people who are saying, and I'm willing to go put it all on the line to tell the world that with you? Communitas. It's the only way that I can envision these guys doing what they did, because in chapter 3, Peter preaches this message. They get thrown in jail. In chapter 4, they're threatened. And then somewhere in chapter 4, around verse 20, the believers do not pray, God, get us out of this mess. God, protect us from these bad people. They say, God, give us boldness that we might proclaim it all the more. Give us boldness. Communitas. Let us, let us not be fans watching the game. Let's put on the jerseys and the shoulder pads and get in the game. Let's really get in this. See, this is the whole point. So here's my point behind this very long diatribe of an article I'm probably never going to write. Okay, is this. 
Jesus is Lord is more than a mantra or a creed or a picture we're going to, a sign we're going to put up somewhere. Jesus is Lord is the fundamental belief that he really is the Lord. And therefore, everybody needs to know that if it's true. And it is true. Because you see, there's a whole bunch of people who are living their life as if Jesus isn't Lord, as if they're the Lord of their own lives, which means when they die, they'll face his judgment. And the world needs to know that this one who's Lord and judge will also be your defense attorney on the day of judgment if you'll trust in him. You need to know that truth. And we, as a church, have to find our unity not in just whether or not we're hanging out with people who believe Jesus is Lord. We need to find our unity in saying, let's all link arms together and let's set aside all the petty fighting about silly things that people fight about in the church. Music's too soft, music's too loud, guitars, pianos, all these dumb things we fight over because that's just community, right? I just want a bunch of people to agree with what I agree with on every little thing. Let's link arms on communitas, 69,000 people out there who don't know Jesus is Lord, and we need to tell them. And we need to live it, show it, link arms together, and let's link arms with people that we might even be different with or have different tastes than us, different styles than us, because it doesn't really matter, because it's not about trying to get you to like my style. It's about getting them to know Jesus is Lord. Communitas, that's the issue. That's the only way that I can envision what we're about to see happen in these, in these two chapters in Acts. And I want to share that just to get your mind thinking about it. Because when Peter's walking into the temple on this day, he sees a man, and this man all of a sudden becomes the catalyst to announce to thousands of people that Jesus is Lord. And at the end of the story, 5,000 people are going to get saved. Peter is like really a successful preacher, man. The first time he preaches the sermon, 3,000 get saved. Second time he preaches the sermon, 5,000 people get saved. That's boldness, though, to do that. And these people were linked in this. And so I, I want us to think about that. As you're going through this story, don't look at the story just as a story that happened and go, isn't that nice? Let's think about the stories. How will this help us link arms together to live this way? So this becomes a defining moment for our church. So you see the outline in your bulletin. It's kind of a trajectory. There's a man that shows up. And this man leads to a miracle. But the miracle wasn't the point. The point was a message. And the message that Peter preached is about the mission that Jesus is on. Which is to redeem people from every tribe and nation. And bring them into his family. And so that's this trajectory. And we're going to see it. And, and I hope it challenges us to, to not think about community, but communitas. Can we link arms and say, let's live this way. Let's live this way. Let's set aside petty stuff and live this way. So let's look at the story here. Start with a man to a miracle. Look at verse 1. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Ninth hour is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So what we learned about the the early church is that all 3,000 people that got saved at the first sermon that Peter preached... They continued to go to the temple every day, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The reason why is that 3 o'clock in the afternoon was the time of prayer. And so everybody gathered for prayer together, 3 o'clock every day. Work stopped, business stopped, all the Jews would go to the temple, they would pray. The early believers would go there, and we learned that they would go there to hear the teaching of the apostles. 
because that was the only place the apostles could address such a large large crowd. So they would all gather, basically on the east side of the temple, this place called Solomon's Porch, and they would gather and they, and they would pray together and then the apostles would teach. And this was, this was going on every day. So in this case, the same thing's happening every day, but this day is slightly different. Look at verse 2. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So, so what we have, we've got a lame guy, cannot walk. Right? He's crippled, so he's carried everywhere. In that day, he obviously didn't have family to care for him because the custom of the day was your family cares for you. If you don't have family to care for you, then you are left begging, and you would beg at the time of prayer because part of the prayer ritual of the Jews was to also go and give offerings to the, to the poor, the people who didn't have family. So that people would show up with money on hand, ready to give it to the beggars. So this is a common experience. So this area is probably filled with people who are lame. This guy now has never been able to walk, so he's got friends that carry him every day, set him outside the temple, and, uh, and, and he's begging. And he sees Peter and John, and he says, do you have money for me? Now, a little bit, I want you to understand a little bit of how that process probably would have looked. Historically, I don't think it's changed all that much, but typically a lame person would lay on the ground, would look up at people, ask for money. If somebody was about to give them money, they would put their heads down into the ground as a sign of humility. So I want you to just picture that in your mind. It'll help the story make sense of what's happening. So I want you to picture a lame guy. You know, he's just, you know, he's not sitting. He's laying down. He sees Peter and John says, do you have money for me? And then he's going to put his head down right into the cement, hands usually in front like that. So that's the picture I want you to have in your mind as the story unfolds. Verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him as did John, and said, look at us. Now you know why he says it, right? He's asking for money, his head is down. This would have been really outside the custom because you're actually shaming the person. They put their head down as a sign of humility and you put the money in and you don't look at them because you don't want to embarrass them, you don't want to shame them. So this is a very outside-the-box moment. Look at us. Whoa, that's bold. Okay. Verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, this is where it kind of goes a little weird, right? At first, I can imagine what this guy's thinking. Because, okay, look at us, all right? Oh, this is weird. But if I get money out of this, I'll do it, right? And he looks up, and then Peter says, what? I have no silver or gold. Oh, great. You're going to embarrass me in front of everybody, and then you don't even give me money for it, right? You know? I don't think he's thinking that, but that's what I thought when I read it, you know? Thinking how odd this moment must have been. But Peter also realizes he's getting everybody's attention. By calling the guy out, asking him to look at him, and then saying, I have no money. But then here's what he does. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood up and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. How many of you are singing that song in your head right now? Okay, it's okay. Right? Most people, I did when I'm studying. Walking and leaping and praising God. Right? Okay, if you don't know the song, Google it. Not now, later. <clears throat> okay. Now, you got to get this story 
Picture this guy. He's got his head down. Peter says, look at us. Guy looks up. I have no money. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Reaches down, grabs the guy by the right arm, and yanks him up. Pulls the guy up, and these crooked legs go straight. Sets the guy down on his legs. What is the first thing the guy does? He starts jumping. Zero physical therapy, right? I mean, there is, right? He's never used his legs. How does he know how to jump? That's the point of, you've got to catch that part of the story. Leaping, he's walking, he's praising. I mean, he's frolicking in the temple courtyard, right? He's never walked in his life. Picture that. Why is that recorded there? It's recorded there to show you God fully restored this guy. Completely. This is what's called a creative miracle or a recreative miracle. He's in a state of completely being lame. And now all of a sudden, he can do it all without any training. He's put right at adult level. This is what's going on. It's an incredible moment. And so he does something he's probably never done in his life. He enters the temple. Well, we know he's never walked in there. He walks in there, and he's running in there, and he's jumping in there. And no doubt, he's shouting praises to God. This is an incredible moment. It's a very powerful moment. But, you know, you could just let that moment stand, but this wasn't really Peter's point. I don't think Peter really had that miracle totally as the end game here. Because notes verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. This guy's been there since, who knows, since he was a young man. Maybe parents died or something. And so they know him. He's there every day. And they could see, I mean, if you've ever seen anybody who has been crippled since birth, There's no muscle development in the leg, right? They've never used their legs. So all of a sudden you see somebody with just, you know, bones with full muscles. Fully functioning muscles just running around. They are amazed. It would be understandable. They they wonder what's happening. They're, They're just in awe, which you would be. Now, here's the thing. This man was the occasion to lead to a miracle. But the miracle isn't the point. Now we go to our second point. The miracle is going to lead to a message. Peter now needs to preach something. Because this isn't really the end game for Peter, that this guy got healed. It's not the end game. What's the end game? Well, the end game is this message. Notice verse 11. Well, he clung to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Okay, this is a really unique moment. You could imagine this guy hugging and kissing Peter and John. You could just imagine like the joy. And this is a pretty emotional moment. There's probably lots of tears and shouting and the people in awe. And they're out on this place called Solomon's Portico. Sometimes it's called Solomon's Porch. It's on the east side. It was a big courtyard. Basically, the kings would oftentimes give their decrees there. It was the place where teaching happened. It's the place where the Levites hung out and did their teaching. It was an area where basically communication happened. And the early church always gathered there in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem would gather on the east side. So the church is there. Other people are there. That's the place where they would have theological conversations 
with the lawyers and the theologians of Israel. And so it was the place you would hang out to ask your questions. So now, but here, what do you have in this moment? You have Peter and John. Now they're surrounded by teachers. So the Sadducees are there. There's lawyers there. There's all kinds of people there in this presence of this spot who are watching this, and that's what's going to cause the persecution that's going to come. But the same token, uh, as everybody's gathered in this spot, Peter's going to talk. Now there's something you need to know, just a little side point. Have in your brain, I'll I'll read it to you in a second, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. And actually, this is a little side note. If you really want to understand the book of Acts, you should read the book of Isaiah. Here's the reason why. Isaiah the prophet is describing to Israel everything that's going to take place when the Messiah comes. Describing all the things that were going to happen. And it's so important to see this because there's many descriptions of things that are going to take place. And this is the stuff that makes the the early preachers, Peter and Paul, as we'll see, when they're talking to Jews, go, you should have known this was going to happen. So Peter's going to give them one of those, you should have known this was going to happen, sermons. And the reason why is in Isaiah chapter 35, it says when the Messiah comes, verse 6, then the lame man leap like a deer. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah said, when the Messiah comes, you'll know when it's the Messiah because what's going to happen is when he arrives, suddenly people who can't walk are going to start walking. But not only are they going to start walking, they're going to be frolicking. Okay? They're going to be frolicking around. This is what's going to happen. And so when, when you see this guy who claims to be the Messiah and then people are frolicking behind him who have never walked before, that's a trigger. That's what Isaiah says. That's, this is what's going on. You need to know that because this kind of gets into the heart of Peter. Because notice what he says in verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? See? You, duh. You should know this. And why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Why are you actually amazed? You shouldn't be amazed at this. And why do you think we did this? We didn't do it. We didn't do this. So we don't have some magical power. And we're not like this super holy person that God's doing these super things through because we're like at this other stratosphere of of some higher level with God. This wasn't us. It wasn't our righteousness. And you really shouldn't have been freaking out about it. You should have expected this. That's the essence of what he says to them. Because you see, what's going on here is exactly what God said. And then look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob... The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up over and denied in the presence of Pilate, and He decided to release Him. When He decided to release Him. So He's saying, okay, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, is a way you would address a a, a Jew. That's how they would always talk about God. The God of our fathers. right? The one, the the all-powerful Jehovah. He glorified Jesus. He literally placed His majesty, His glory upon Him. He was the one. The guaranteed one. He was it. He was the Messiah. And you know what you did? You wanted Him dead. So the one that God had chosen to be the Messiah, the God of our Father, you wanted Him dead 
even after Pilate tried to let him go, you wanted him dead. You see, you hate God. That's what he's saying in his sermon. You hate God. Right? That's bold, right? I mean, that is bold preaching. You hate him. You wanted him killed, the one who was glorified. Now, you see, that is the essence of Peter's message right there. Now, we're going to look at it a little bit further to understand it. But the essence of his message is this. Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Messiah of the world. And when you say, I don't believe that, you're on the wrong side of God. That simple. You're on the wrong side of God. There are no other ways. There's no other truth. This is it. This is his message. But this message leads to a mission. Because, you see, we don't end the message there. We end the message with the fact that there's still hope. There's still good news following this bad news. So let's look at our third point. Let's look at this message that leads to a mission. You've just told them that you've rejected God. Now what Peter's going to do, though, is he's going to unpack the depth of their mistake. And he's going to show them that you really rejected God in four ways. This is bold. Four, four mistakes you made. Well, let's look at the four mistakes they made. First mistake, or the first sin, was they sought to do away with Jesus. Look back at verse 13 again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over. Your first mistake was... You said, I want him dead. You've rejected him. You wanted to do away with God's anointed. It's the first mistake. Second mistake. You tried to stop Pilate from releasing him. Look at the second mistake. The end of verse 13. And denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. So Pilate says, no, 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 I don't want to kill him. I don't see anything wrong with him. I'm going to let him go. And they said, no, give us the murderer. Give us the murderer. We want the murderer. So Pilate, you actually stood in the way of someone who was trying to release Jesus. That led to the third sin, which gets a little bit deeper. You actually asked for a murderer instead of the Messiah. You wanted a murderer to be released. That's where your heart went. Look at verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Can you believe this? You had the Messiah in front of you and said, no, we'd rather embrace this one who kills people. How crazy is that? That's what he's saying. This is what you did, which led to their fourth mistake. By embracing the murderer and rejecting the Messiah, you tried to kill the author of life. Verse 15. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. That's a powerful verse there, isn't it? Jesus is the one the actual part of the Godhead that did the creation itself. God the Father says, I want there to be a planet. God the Son put it all together. God the Spirit hovered over that planet. Powerful picture that's going on there. And this is the one who can speak life into people. This is the one who can say, Lazarus, come forth, and he can come alive. This is the one who can say, I can forgive your sins, and your sins are forgiven. This is the one who can say, whatever shame you have in your past, I can wipe it away. You don't need to be holding on to the guilt of your past This is the one who could say, whatever happened to you, whoever hurt you and abused you and and did horrible things to you, it doesn't really matter because you're no longer defined by that anymore. 
You now have the life of Jesus and whatever happened to you in the past can be wiped away. He's the author of life. He brings life everywhere he goes. And you said, nah, we don't want that. We don't want that life. We have no desire for that life. In fact, we'd rather have that life go into the grave. But the reality is that you can't put the author of life in the grave because God raised him from the dead. And Peter says, oh, and by the way, I saw it. I saw it. That's why Peter says to him, you know, in the name of Jesus, he's the one that does it. He's the one that brings life to this guy. It wasn't Peter. So let's look what happens next. Then Peter packages it all together in verse 16. And by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, what I want you to notice is he's saying Jesus is the author of life, and Jesus is the one that gave him life. But a little thing I want you to catch here that you could, you could kind of run past too quickly is notice it says, by faith in his name. Two things I want to point out to you. First of all, the name of Jesus means his power. It's recognizing who he is in total. It's basically saying, I believe he's Lord. I believe he's the author of life. His name is the, the total of his power. That's what name meant to a Jew the representation of who you are. So by faith in who he is. But I want you to notice something about this faith, and this is the second thing I want you to notice. Whose faith is he talking about? Who had the faith? Peter had the faith, exactly. This man didn't have any faith. Peter yanks him up, man. He doesn't even give him time to have faith. So the name of Jesus be healed. Pulls him up. Strong fishermen can do that, right? You yank this guy up, boom, the guy's legs are healed, and the next thing you know, he's running through the temple. I say that because oftentimes you kind of have these people, do you have enough faith to get healed? Do you have enough faith to get healed? I'm not getting healed. I don't have enough faith. The faith never resi- ever, ever rested in the person getting healed. The faith was in the one who was doing the healing. I believe that Jesus is strong enough. I believe that it is his will. It is by this faith in him. Now, this is the point of this is not to go on a whole healing sermon here. The point of this is to say that, that the issue on the table is that Peter understood that at this moment a healing was required. Isaiah 35 demanded that it happen. And he believed when he saw this person that this was a moment for the scriptures to be fulfilled, and Peter believed that Jesus was strong enough to do it. And it's not about the man and his faith, it's irrelevant. It's the faith of the one doing it. Peter said, I believe he'd do it. I believe this is what the scripture wanted. I believe this moment demanded this. But not because it, the end game was that this guy's going to be healed. This guy ended up in the grave. His body's already decayed and gone. It's irrelevant that his legs work. What is relevant is that these people understand that Jesus is alive. And that's the point of this. That the one you tried to kill is actually alive. And look what he just did. That's what's going on here. That's the focal point. And Peter's saying, I had faith in Jesus. I believe he's Lord. And you know what? If you kind of take the, the little side point away from that, that's the kind of faith that I think allows you to engage the mission. That's the kind of faith that allows you to stand bold at a tough moment. I really do believe he's Lord. I really do believe he'll give me the power. I really do believe he'll give me the endurance. And even if this proclamation leads to my death, I believe you'll see me all the way through to the grave and to beyond. I really believe this in you. I really believe it. Peter really believed it. And he said, salvation comes. Now, we get a little mercy from Peter. Look at verse 17. 
Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, and so did your rulers, right? I understand that you guys didn't know what you were doing, but ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? Look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. I know you acted in ignorance, but I also want you to know it was there in the Scriptures. So you're not at an excuse. You can't say, I didn't know. It was there. Isaiah 53 made that pretty clear, right? He would suffer. He would, he would suffer stripes. He'd be crushed by the Father. And he did this. So, so when you look at the Messiah, don't think that the Messiah failed in his death. He didn't. Verse 19 comes, starts the application. Repent, therefore, and turn back. The repentance isn't to go down and list all the little individual sins of your life. The first act of repentance is to say, where have I not embraced Jesus as Lord? I honestly believe that, you know, I could sit here and list a bunch of sins and you guys could all come forward and pray on all those sins. But here's the fundamental reality. If you really live your life as if you're the Lord of your life and what matters is your agenda, your goal, your, what you need, what you want out of life, that life isn't fair because you're not getting the hand that you believe you should be dealt and that everything isn't going your way, it doesn't really matter if you confess the sin of lying or something because you're living life as if you're the Lord. And the first act of repentance is to surrender your lordship of the world and embrace Christ as Lord. Embrace His agenda for your life. That's the first act of repentance. There is no other repentance that really matters because if you just say, okay, I lied, but I'm still going to get up and live my own way, it's irrelevant. This is why Peter isn't saying, let me give you a whole list. Every sin that he listed was a sin of rejection against Jesus as Lord. And that's our starting spot of repentance. Now, once we're there, then we start saying, okay, I want to submit my tongue to the Lord. I want to submit my flesh to the Lord. I want to submit my, my, my love of money to the Lord. I want, right? Now I'm bringing all of those lesser things to Jesus under the auspice that he's the Lord and I want to follow him. I, have, I cannot help people who don't first and foremost begin by saying Jesus is Lord. People can list all kinds of problems in front of me and I can't help them until they first and foremost come to the understanding, do you believe Jesus is Lord? And will you follow him if it means that nothing ever gets fixed in your life? Will you follow him if the pain and the problems carry you all the way through, if that is God's will, will you follow him at all costs? If we can't start there, it doesn't really matter. So this is why the repentance is that. What do you believe about Jesus? And then there's a bunch of benefits. Notice the benefits. Three of them. First one, that your sins may be blotted out. Erased is another way of saying that. God will no longer record and remember and deal with you on any of those sins ever again for the rest of your existence. Done. Over. Sins are blotted out. Then notice the second benefit. Verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now you stand in the presence of the Lord enjoying it. There's a lot of people who are afraid of God. Afraid God hates them. Afraid God's going to turn them away. So there isn't refreshing to be in the presence of the Lord. You feel judged by God. He's saying, well, you could actually stand in his presence and feel refreshment if you say, I'm going to embrace Jesus as Lord. That's how I'm going to start there. Yes, 
You're the Lord. I'm going to follow you. And guess what? Now you can be in his presence and God will actually begin to restore and cleanse the anxiety and the worries and the fears. And that's all the stuff I think he's talking about. The presence of God would actually just restore you as a person. Then notice the third benefit. That he may send the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I'll summarize that in a simple way. The Messiah is in heaven right now, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to make all things right. And part of the way he's going to make all things right is he's going to pull his own to himself so they'll be with him. And then he's going to bring judgment upon all those who rejected his lordship. And he's saying when he returns, I want him to pull you so when he's making all things right, you get to enjoy that kingdom rather than being punished. That you would actually have an eternity with him is what he's saying. Saying, repent. All your sins will be forgiven. God will refresh your soul and you can have an eternity with him. That's his sermon. Now we're going to stop this story here. We'll pick it up, Lord willing, next week. We'll see how it unfolds. But what I want you to think about are just a couple of thoughts. For Peter and John and these first few thousand believers, the reality of Jesus being Lord was not just a mantra they believed. It was a mission that they lived for. They wanted people to know this. And when a moment shows up where there's a crippled man, Peter steps into that moment so that he can insert himself and the gospel into that moment, knowing full well there's costs, knowing that standing around him out in Solomon's portico are the very same people that just sentenced Jesus to death just a few months earlier. Standing around him are the very same people that he was actually hiding from that he knew Jesus. The very same people. The very same guards. Hey, and the very same crowds of people saying, hey, you with him? No, I don't know him. I don't know him. Right? He's surrounded by these very same people. But now all of a sudden with the Spirit of God on him, he wants to make the name of Jesus known. Because belief in Jesus is not just a creed we believe in. It's a mission we're called to, to let the world know. And our job is to link arms and to say, all right, together, let's do this. Let's make that known. Let's make that known by the way we live. Let's make it known by the way we love people. And let's make it known by the way we talk. And let's link arms together, and it's going to be tough. Some of you have to make that name known to family members who you don't even want to be with anyways, right? Certain people, it's hard, difficult. But God, at some point, might have you be the person that's going to make the name of Christ known to them. Some of you have to do that at work. Some of you do that in the community. Sometimes you're in awkward situations where somebody says something and, and uh, you've got to take a stand at that moment. Some weird thing happens and, and, and your instincts are to, to cower back and to say, no, okay, let's bond together and pray for each other. And with technology, man, you could probably Facebook a friend in the middle of that moment and say, hey, pray for me. You know, Help me right now. I've got to take a stand for Jesus. And, and, and we can link our arms together because here's the reality. Jesus really is Lord. And the good news of that 
so that your sins can be blotted out and you can find times of refreshment and have an eternity with him if you embrace him. But if you don't, when he returns, then judgment's coming and you're on the bad side of that because no other religion in the world makes you right with God. There's no other way that makes you right with the Father. That's the, the boldness and, and, and the sharpness of this message. And that's what gets people to hate it. But the good news is, Jesus is the one who saves. And Jesus is the one who says, yeah, I can forgive that. And I can bring you to myself. And you can have your sins blotted out, refreshment in my presence, and in eternity with me. So my challenge for us as a church, let's link arms together and let's make ourselves not just a community of believers. Let's make ourselves a communitas of believers who want to live this, love it, show it, make it part of who we are. And, uh, and let's live our life that way. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus. Lord, there are many, even in this room maybe, who don't, not even submitted to Jesus as Lord. Maybe they try to live a religious life. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that the, the words of Peter would, would get their attention and that they would see that there's no life, there's no forgiveness. Living outside of Jesus only brings worry, fear, anxiety, depression, anger, addictions, all kinds of stuff. God, show them the reality of their existence and show them that they can not only be forgiven for the things they're ashamed of, they can be restored the damage that's been done to them. They can be renewed and refreshed. And they can have a hope of something greater than this earth. God, I pray that people would know that today. And Lord, I pray that the defining mark of our community would be that we're going to link arms together and learn about Jesus, fellowship around Him and His cross, and then make His name known together. God, give us that kind of communitas here in our church. Define us that way. I thank you, God, that we can do that. And I pray for this, that this would be true and evident for us together. In Christ's name, amen.